This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Jolene Brighton, who is a hormone expert, nutrition scientist, and thought leader in women's medicine. She is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology and trained in clinical sexology. Dr. Brighton is the author of Is This Normal? A Non-Judgmental Guide to Creating Hormone Balance, Eliminating Unwanted Symptoms, and Building the Sexual Desire You Crave a fierce patient advocate and completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones through her website and social media channels. Dr. Brighton is an international speaker, clinical educator, and medical advisor within the tech community. Today, we talk about what it means for certain symptoms of our health to be normal versus common what hormones are important to be in balance. How do we know if they are in balance versus not? She explains how hormones like insulin and cortisol matter when talking about sex hormones of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. This was an awesome conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now onto the podcast. Hi, Dr. Brighton. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you again. I love all the work that you do. I'm very excited for your new book, Is This Normal? And I know that you're just going to share so much wonderful information with us, and I'm excited about it. I know. I'm really excited for this conversation. I still have the giggles. Nobody nobody hears the pre-conversation, so we've been like laughing for like 15 minutes, but here we are. We're ready to go. We are going to be professional and sound like doctors. (laughs) Absolutely. Love it. (laughs) Good game plan. (laughs) All right. Perfect. So I, I mean, you have the book, Is This Normal in Your Background? And I just mentioned it in the intro, but um, I would love for you to just give us a background on this book. Why'd you write it? What inspired you to share this information with the world? Oh, gosh. You know, we were just talking about writing books and it is just something that you do because like you have to. You're like, I have to get this information out to people. And I'm a big fan of books as a way to do that. And social media, as you know, I'm on there talking all the time. But this book was really born out of all of the questions that I get from patients on social media, from my readers of drbrighton.com. And I collected questions over the years um, not really knowing I'm going to write a book, but doing my weekly Ask Dr. Brighton on Instagram and you know coming through and, and being like, these questions are coming in. Let's write articles so that we can meet people's needs. But there's only so much that you can say on social media. There's only so much time, so many characters. And you can't talk about certain things on the internet. Um, because if I talked about all the things I talk about in the book, Google would definitely label me as a different kind of website. And it's not the kind of website that they will show you. They'll be like, no, you have to know this URL if you want to get there. So I took everybody's questions who's been bringing me them for years, the things that they have trusted me with, some of the most intimate of things, and I put them in a book. And through that, I came up with a program that marries the two aspects of the book. So the first, the beginning is your sexual self. Then we've got your cyclical self, which is all about your hormones and really bridged an understanding about how do your hormones operate on a week by week basis during the menstrual cycle? And how does that impact every aspect of your body and your life? Not just this like let's talk about the period and let's talk about just our moods or just talk about our breasts, but let's talk about everything and including the things that we're not supposed to talk about, but we all wonder, is it normal? I love that. We also on our social media pages get the questions, is this normal about all types of different things, sexual Mm -hmm. health. um, And then of course, around periods and all of that as well. So can you kind of describe to us what's the difference between normal and common? Uh, so, um, common is everything that your doctor sees, everything that comes into their office, right? Because when do you go to the doctor? 
when you have a problem that you need solved. So these are the things like painful periods, having PMS, mood swings, insomnia, um, even things like feeling hot flashes that gets chalked up as like, oh, well, that's just that's normal. When in fact, it's a common phenomenon for us to experience. Um, things like not being in the mood like before your period or not being in the mood because you've been under high stress kind of situation. As women, we often get told, well, that's common, therefore it's normal, right? But they don't even mention the common part. They just say, well, that's normal. Like you're a woman you're not supposed to be interested in sex. You don't, you're, you're really like men are interested in sex, not women. Like, no, that's not true. Actually, that generalization doesn't serve any gender whatsoever, but it's just not true. And so, you know, when I talk about all of this, like what we're really talking about is the common myths and the stories that we're told just because we happen to be born with ovaries. Like this, is this normal question doesn't come up a whole lot in men's health because things like erectile dysfunction are not only characterized, sometimes made, you know, to be a joke in media, but you got ads for drugs talking about it. You've got uh, your doctor bringing it up, talking about it. And so when we talk about the realm of male sexual health, like these things are normalized as, as part of the conversation. In fact, most of medicine and sex education has been very male-centered. I mean, the majority, right? Except for like obstetrics. It's like, oh, oh yeah, like baby making, like we'll put it over there. Gynecology, like put it over there. Um, and yet, I mean, as you know, just being in medicine, like that has caused a lot of harm, whether that is overt harm from misdiagnosis or from dismissing women's pain, which we know has been going on forever, or it is the harm of, someone not getting to live their full life and having the full quality of life because they're told that their period pain is normal when in fact it was actually endometriosis and it was affecting their activities of daily living. So in such an impactful way, they could not live their life to the full capability of someone who doesn't have endo. Yeah. I It's kind of crazy too because when you're watching like Instagram or even just TV shows and they do a lot, you know how tech is always listening to us. And so they do targeted <laughs> yeah, they ads. <laughs> and even for targeted ads, when I'm watching TV, I'm still getting like specific ads about like Peyronie's disease and like mm -hmm. different ways to like treat men's like erectile dysfunction, stuff like you were talking about. Never yeah. do I ever see anything about women's health. And mm -hmm. I, I, like you said, it's like just pushed to the side. Unless it's the tampon or pad commercial where it's like, you know, oh, we're all skipping around on our period or the Midal commercial, you know, I don't actually, I don't, I don't watch TV. Um, yeah, so people know if they're like, that commercial doesn't exist. Back in 20 years ago when I saw a commercial, I have Netflix. This is, I should say, like, I am not, um, there are wellness purist people who are like, never watch TV. Um, I don't watch things with commercials is what I should say. <laughs> But like 20 years ago, I remember like the messaging that I got, which was like, um, you know, your period, it was actually birth control. I, remember, I believe it was the Yaz commercials um, that where it was like, oh, it's like dark and horrible and life sucks. And then like you take this medication and like, oh, the birds are singing and like sun is shining. And so it is this messaging that inherently your, your normal must be broken. And by default, you must have a medication to remedy this life called being a woman. And that I just really take issue with. And I don't think... You know, when we talk about the concept of normal, I also don't think that medicine holds a lot of space for normal being a spectrum. I think only now we're starting to see, like, even like if you look at like um, the conversation around neurodiversity, right? For a very long time, and there's still people out there doing this where they're like, no, autism, um, that's only men have autism. ADHD, that's a little boy disease. Like, and all of these women have been left out. And now, you know, medicine's starting to wake up to the reality of like, wow, so PMDD, is it? Or are they autistic? Like, and autism is not this like, all or nothing, either you talk or don't talk kind of situation, right? Where people are like, oh, you'd be nonverbal, you'd be all these things. And I feel like so much of medicine you know, we try our best to do the algorithm and to put things into categories so that we can treat it appropriately. And that needs to happen. It's very necessary. And yet we don't have the conversation about the spectrum of normal and how there's normal for you and there's and and then there's the symptoms that come up that concern you. 
it just because we see that day in and day out doesn't make it normal. Because for you, you're saying, I lived in this body for like 25 years, 35 years, whatever it is. And now this is happening and this has never happened. It's not normal for me. Just because we see it day in and day out doesn't mean that like, oh, that change is not of a concern for that person. And anyone listening to this, I think that has like an ounce of common sense, is like nodding their head, being like, yeah, of course, of course. And yet we see so often women are absolutely dismissed in their provider's offices. This isn't my opinion. This is what science and research has shown us to be true. Absolutely. And um, <laughs> this is a loaded topic because the women's, the woman's body is so complicated and there's so many different hormones going on and it changes from day to day to day and then like normal mm-hmm. changes from day to day to day. But uh, what are some of the like basics of women's health that we just haven't been taught about where we can kind of like tune into our bodies and be like, okay, maybe this, even if it, it isn't normal for me, it might be like yeah. on the spectrum of normal. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say, um, and people are going to come for me on this because they do all the time on social media that we haven't been taught is that you can only get pregnant one day out of the cycle. There's only one day that that egg is viable. Now, sperm can live up to five, maybe six, if your womb is really just like loving them. But, you know, it's not us that are actually fertile that entire time. And I get the, like the US system of sex education is fear-based and medicine is fear-based when it comes to sex education. It's like how we all operate. And what's problematic about that is that we're misinforming people about their body. And it is only once somebody tries to get pregnant that we're like, oh, actually, like this is the way it works. And it's not even then. It's usually when they've struggled for six months to a year, unable to conceive that somebody's like, by the way, are you doing it on the right day? And that person's like, wait, but I was told by my doctor and my teacher and my mother, I could get pregnant any day out of my cycle. And it's like, well, we were lying. Oh, but trust us about everything else. But we just lied about that to keep you safe. Like that is really problematic. Like that is why I think there's one of the many reasons stacked upon us of why there is such a strain of the doctor-patient relationship and why people are coming out saying they don't trust providers online, which I think, you know, even this moment right here that we're taking to do this is an opportunity for us to rekindle those relationships and to show people that like, nobody, like, let me just say this, nobody gets into medicine unless they really care about do, about doing right by people and trying to take care of people. And as we were talking before we hit record, um, the system can be harsh and there is a response that has to happen in the name of survival, which is sometimes shutting down or making it to where you like are pumping people out in five to seven minutes. And it's not what anybody dreamed being a doctor would be like, but it is just the reality of a system that has forced them to operate in such a way. So that is all to say, whether you think so or not, I do not believe your doctor is a bad person or has any ill intentions. So that is one thing I think we're we're telling people about their body that isn't that isn't right. Now, to answer your question about like things that are on the spectrum. So we've got people in the wellness space. I just have to giggle like right away. They have this idea of a perfect period where they're like, it's bright red l- blood. It lasts three to five days. You have zero cramping whatsoever. You never affected by your mood. Like there's never a clot. I'm like, why would, like, there's going to be some clots when your body <laughs> bleeds, you form a clot because bleeding is bad if you do too much of it. Like prove me wrong. Like it's, it's a bad thing any in any capacity. And so your body will clot. And so seeing small clots in your menstrual blood is normal. And we get these conversations going. I mean, I even see the extremes. Um, it happens a lot in the vegan uh, world. I don't know why. If you're vegan, check your people, not me. I'm not saying being a vegan lends to this. But what I am seeing is this narrative among vegans where they say, having a period is detoxing your body. And if you're vegan, you're no longer toxic. There's no reason to have a period. So your goal should be to lose your period. And I'm like, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is not the way, friends. It is not the way. Like that is dysfunction. You have underfed your body to an extreme to where the environment has signaled famine and the body has to shut down hormones. And in doing that, you're going to increase your risk of dementia, heart disease, osteoporosis, like, and you're 18 or 19. Like, this is bad. You got a whole life to live, friend. Don't mess with it right now. So I think there's that one end of the spectrum. And I want to, I don't want to just sit here and dog on medicine. I want to play like to that as well in this conversation because you've got people really confused because their doctor's like, 
oh, you're vomiting with your period? Like, that's normal. Here, like, just take birth control, ibuprofen. You're bleeding really heavy. Ibuprofen will help. Yes, it will. However, when somebody is bleeding so heavy, it's going past seven days, they are seeing clots that are bigger than a quarter. So if you're having quarter-sized clots, like, you like this is i remember one patient being like there's like a jelly like i see it's like jellyfish i'm passing jellyfish and i was like after having a baby i was like that's it's definitely jellyfish like um but with that that could be a sign of fibroids endometriosis like something else can be going on it's a sign that your body is bleeding too heavily is it normal if you never have cramps yeah that's totally normal like sometimes man i have got my sleep right my stress right my magnesium right and my period sneaks up on me and i'm like i just won like i just feel like i just won the period this month like yay um but it's not always that way and so I think it's important for people to understand that light cramping is normal. Um, if your blood starts out and it's kind of dark color and, it, you know, it's like, oh, it starts off a little bit dark, but like then a flow starts, that's not abnormal. If you spot two to three days before your period and, and you're seeing this dark blood, like that could be a sign of low progesterone. Not normal. Okay. But when it gets to the end of your period, almost everyone sees brown discharge. Yep, there are people out there telling you something is wrong with your uterus because you didn't see this brown discharge uh, or because you're seeing it. Excuse me. So seeing it is totally normal. It's just oxygen meeting iron. Like it's an oxidization of the blood happening. And so seeing that is normal. Having like these, you know, these period extremes, like we've got the wellness, you know, in like industry being like, oh, it should be like one way. And then we've got medicine being like, well, it doesn't matter if it's all these other things can leave you really confused. And so that's why in the book, I actually put together checklists for people to go through these checklists, very, very good at helping you figure out what is going on with your body. And my really big intention with this is that this is the data you take to your provider. So when you're curious because you're, you know, now 50 and you're like, hey, wait, my periods are getting like really heavy and there's these really big clots, knowing that statistically speaking, you are really high risk of fibroids and you go through this fibroid checklist and your doctor says to you, oh, you're just getting older and your periods are get weird and that's the way it is. It's true. Your periods do get weird as you get older, but that's <laughs> not just what we accept. Like we still should be like, yeah, but like how weird are we talking here? Like what is actually going on? And it could be fibroids. Um, you know, there's a checklist for endometriosis because this is something that's highly underdiagnosed and can be missed. It can, you know, show up as infertility or it might show up as really painful periods or it might only show up as pain with sex or it might only show up with like pain with bowel movements. So it can show up in a lot of ways. And what we know is medicine is absolutely horrible at catching it these days. And is that because we lack the technology? No, it's because we really lack the awareness and the research in women's health. So I just said a whole lot. I get, try to give you this spectrum of things. I hope that was helpful in terms of just understanding like around your period. Like we didn't even talk menstrual cycles or any of that other stuff. But just, I think then it, like the period, um, it's so funny in 2015, it was announced that was like the year of the period. And I feel like, and then what followed is like five years later, we went into a pandemic and then it was like the year of period confusion because periods did weird things. And lots of people went to talking online about women's health and women's bodies, but also just health in general. And I think everybody got like really health conscious. And then that's when we started to see like even more extreme narratives start to come out of like, you know, how, how our body should operate and how things should be. And also like how, like, you know, everything is affecting your body because like, it's been crazy since 2020. There's been so much going on on this planet. Absolutely. That was so helpful. And what I love about what you bring to the to the space of women's health, like with your book and with your Instagram account and social media um, and your website, is that you give people the tools to advocate for themselves within the doctor's office. Because I, like you were saying, people are having to be churned out, churned out every five to seven minutes. And the doctor's love would love to spend more time. They they don't mm -hmm. want to go back to their computer and write notes. Like that's our or least favorite thing to do. Or go into the room with the next patient who's pissed because they're late, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, they want to be able to give everyone all the time. It's just that like there's not enough hours in the day or uh people supporting them that are actually in the admin. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's just, I mean, uh, pretty much the the hospital system and the clinics are just trying to make as much money as they can to keep the lights on. And so Mm. you have to see as many patients as you possibly can. But with the tools that you provide, people already know what they're going to ask their doctor. So it's like more efficient because you you can't go in expecting that you're going to have a lot of time with a doctor because unfortunately that's just like not how our system is built. Absolutely. And that's also why I focus so much on nutrition and lifestyle in my books and everything I do online. Like you are going to need doctors at some point, but if I can give you information that makes it so you don't need doctors or give you the information that makes it so that whatever they're providing you is enhanced by the care that you can practice at home, like I am all about that. Um, It's a rarity to find doctors who have backgrounds in nutrition. I am unique in that way of having this background in nutrition science and really coming from my own personal experience, but also my education of just how powerful food can be. Why do we not teach, like we don't, we talk about how we don't teach sex ed in schools. We we also don't teach uh, health ed in schools in terms of like, how should you exercise? There's like some like, like PE is such bullshit. Like when I look back about it, I'm like, man, I didn't need to run a mile. Like that's <laughs> the most important thing. Like as fast really, as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, there was like things like knowing like strength training, like, and like, just, I think nobody taught you, like, you need to be flexible, you need to be strong and you need to have like, you know, cardiovascular and lung, um, endurance, right? Like, so these things are important, but like, you're just going through the motions and doing these things. I personally hated PE so much. I almost flunked out of freshman PE. It's so funny because because then I went on to be like a Greek fitness instructor and work in the fitness industry for like 10 years. Hated <laughs> PE so much. Like it's so awful. And I knew nothing about why I was doing what I was doing. I'm like, why? What is the point of this? Um, and it was still like the um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you my all my age, like this was in the 90s. And so the focus was very much like, how does everybody look like Kate Moss? And so I was like, are we just doing this so that we can be as skinny as possible? And I like hate this because like the rebel in me is like inherently, I will not conform. I hate everything about this right now. But like we also don't teach about like eating food. Like I'm in high school, there wasn't these classes when I went to um, college, I, I like could get by on cooking. Like I thought it was pretty good. Cause like I could take a package of like instant noodles and like add some chicken and a bell pepper to it. And I was like, yeah. Like, <laughs> me. And it was when I was in college, like getting my nutrition degree that they were like, you are required to take all of these nuclear cooking classes. You can't teach people nutrition unless you know how to cook yourself. Like you can't be counseling people on how to have better diets if you yourself can't even be at home doing this. That was phenomenal. I like learned how to like make eclairs. <laughs> it's health food, just in case you're curious. Um, but also like, you know, how to how to prepare a duck and like do all these things and get exposed to all these foods I wouldn't have otherwise. And I bring all of this up because like this is something that everybody should have exposure to. And so I feel like I've been doing all these podcasts and everybody, we've been talking about like how much sex ed failed us. And it's like such a drop in the bucket compared to like how much our education overall failed us. And that we shouldn't be dependent on our doctors to be like, how do I just live? Like, how do I, like, should should I sleep? Should I drink water? Should I exercise? Should I like, and yet like we've gatekept that knowledge from people and people don't have it. So that's the other layer of all of this is that you can do the nutrition and lifestyle and work with your provider. I, I really take issue with this like whole, like, oh, like your doctor works for you. Like screw them if they don't do everything that you want to do. And then people who are like, learn how to never need a doctor, like, you know, and then like never go to a doctor. And I'm like, doctors are really important. I don't just say that because I am one. It's because like, you, like, unless you know how to suit your friend, you're probably going to need a doctor at some point in your life. Like, and even still, like this is- Or interpret labs or whatever. Yeah. Like all this kind of like basics, you know, stuff that we kind of take for granted. You can do so much at home. You are empowered. Like you should be empowered to do all of that, but your doctor- can't be everything to. It's like why we have registered dietitians. It's why we have these other healthcare providers that can be part of the team. It's because there's no way your doctor can be everything to you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. So many things to to bring up (laughs) in what you just said. I think that the whole educational service or uh, system is doing a disservice to us because they took away home ec forever ago. Um, They're starting to take away like recess and stuff, which takes away kids' creativity and the ability to just get energy out, which is a whole different thing. And like, do you just like hate yourself? Do you hate yourself? Because I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old and an almost two-year-old. And I will tell you, 
I am like, move your butts as much as possible. My son can't even, he's got like a whole checklist. He's homeschooled, but um, he can't even come to me and ask for like any kind of screen time. One of his things is unless you've had 20 minutes of physical activity, like prior to this, like you have to like have done intentional physical activity because it is, there's just way too much research at this point to be depriving children of movement and the humans of movement. It's like so... I don't think that people really grasp that sitting on your butt in academia is not the way that people actually learn. Children are very play-based. There is so much, like I homeschool my kid and yet I'll say there's so much to be learned on the playground. They go to the playground and learn conflict resolution is just one thing. Like how many adults need that? Anyway. I want to hear, like what are some of your takes? Because you don't have kids yet. But you were like right now you're in your pediatric rotations. I would love to hear like some of your takes. I think everybody would love to hear some of your takes. I think I'm I'm a little bit afraid for the next generation. I don't want to sound like a pessimist. I'm a very optimistic person, um, but I'm a realist. So almost every single kid that I see cannot remove their eyes from like an iPad or a screen. No, I hear that. I think it's a very hard thing for parents to navigate like, especially given like when you consider the pandemic, like navigating screen time is really hard because there were the parents who knew that, okay, screen time, not good. We want to limit that. And then they had to put their children in front of screens for hours out of the day. Um, and suddenly public health officials were like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But it's not fine. And we could have said both. We could have said like, this is not fine. It's what we have to do right now. Oh, and here's some tools to help mitigate that. We just don't do things like that. We just like we like, we're talking about the creativity with children, like the people who in charge lack creativity, like forethought, like, um, re like insights based in reality of what the average person's life is like, because, you know, so there's that situation. This is the situation that it is very hard to parent these days without screens in the concept of like, I am like, I don't want to sound judgmental, but I was really taken back that we went with our friends out to dinner and all of their children were on iPads and we didn't bring our son's iPad. And he was like, what the heck? He's 10. I'm like, you're 10. You can sit at a table and have a conversation with children. Like I brought crayons. I brought like stuff. No, they all just sat there on iPads and none of them talked to each other. And I was like, this is so weird. Like it is so weird. Um, and my son, we never did that. We still like the youngest, the two-year-old, he's it's a little bit harder now because um we go out to eat. And there he sees all these other toddlers who have screens in front of them. We go to like the grocery and he is seeing all of these kids sitting there with screens in front of them. And it, I think it is really easy for someone to say like, oh, like these parents are not doing a good job. This might be the only break they're getting. Like this might be the only way, like they don't have the energy and the resources and the tools or just like they don't have the energy at the end of the day. Like they just want to eat a freaking dinner and not be screamed at and not have to entertain someone nonstop. Or they like have to just like get through the grocery store. And like my two-year-old is trying to like die. He is like, let me stand on this shopping cart and I will try to drop head first. And then after a while, I'm going to be angry with you. And I'm going to expect that I can walk around. Like I have to make a game of like pushing the shopping cart. But like, man, I am like wearing a purse as a backpack and like having to like chase a toddler around. And I'm like, it takes me two hours to get through what should be like a 45 minute endeavor. And again, it comes back to like, I have intentionally raised my children in a different way with the resources I have and knowing what I know. I'll also say it's a lot easier to have a 10-year-old and a two-year-old than like a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old and like all of that. So I also have that luxury of the gap. No, no, I I, I think it's super important. And I, it's also like you can't be judgmental on anyone because it's a cultural thing. I mean, it's yeah. just like people don't have the community like you were saying anymore. So they don't have people who are helping them out taking care of the kids. It's literally just on the whoever the parents are. And yeah. instead of like the whole family, like living together and being in community. And so someone has to watch the kids. Sometimes it has to be an iPad. And then people just yeah. are like working so hard. There is no luxury of time. Well, so. as you say all that, I also like, so we um, try to world school our kids and take them to like different countries uh, for, you know, several months out of the year. I'm still working during that time. Sometimes we were like, how do you vacation that much? I'm like, I'm, I am not vacationing. Yeah, I, I don't say working. that. Um, <laughs> I am working. Um, but, you know, it's really easy. Like I see like, you know, the, the articles or the books or the, um, you know, social media content where people are like, oh, in France, the French raised their kid this way. 
in Spain, in Greece. And it's true. Like I would much rather have my children over in these other countries because nobody like gives, no one side eyes you when your baby cries in public. Nobody acts like children shouldn't be in public spaces or shouldn't take up space. Nobody acts like they were never a freaking child before. Um, That is all very United States. I'm calling you out 100% that you act in that way. And yet we also have to have the other side of the conversation that these people are able to be with their kids in that way because their entire society is conducive to it. Their childcare is subsidized, if not covered. They have vacation time and they actually use it. Their lunches are not this like, oh, eat at your desk. You're supposed to have an hour, but you have a deadline and your boss put this more work on you kind of situation. Like they actually take more than an hour for lunch. And so it is a completely different way of being. And then yet you see these articles that are like, this is how French moms do it better. And I'm like, yeah. So if I got all that maternity leave and uh, the government paid to rehab my vagina and <laughs> like, you know, I've got like subsidized childcare and all these other factors, then yeah, I could do things better. I definitely believe I could do things better. But we are all doing the best we can with what we have and the resources that we have. And I do think we should look at other countries who are doing it better and aspire all together as a community to move towards that. But putting it on the individual and put like being like, this is 100% your responsibility to do better. It's really freaking hard to raise kids in the, the world that we're in. We all know deep down, like at a hormonal level, how off we are. Because there is a mismatch between what we are as an organism and what our society dictates we should be. It's a complete evolutionary mismatch. It is why we see the rise of autoimmunity, the issues with adrenal and thyroid function, the rise in infertility, like all, all of the things happening inside our environment, in the environment that we live in is impacting us in these ways. And yet the demand is still there to show up and be like this super organism that doesn't exist on this planet yet. Like we have not gotten there. Yeah. And that's why I'm so passionate about like the public health, like my MPH that I got, because it's similar to like what child raising health as, as well. Like when capitalism is at the root of it and everyone's extracting and making the most from people, it's unfair to put the blame on people for being unhealthy because that's just how it works. Like that's how food companies make money is like advertising their like horrible products to kids and they get you hooked at the beginning. And it's, it's just, it's all very structural. Um, yeah, but (laughs) should we talk about women's hormones? (laughs) Yeah, we can talk more about hormones. I do think like, but I do want to just, if anybody is like listening to this and being like, well, I don't know kids, this doesn't affect me. It absolutely does affect you. Um, because you are like, we are all dependent on each other as a community. But I also think this conversation we just had is really important because, it is at the crux of the caretakers of our society's issues. And it is a problem that I can't easily solve in a book or on a podcast interview, and neither can you. It's something that we have to start talking about more and shedding more light on because the primary caretakers, which tend to be women in this society, their health is suffering in a big way, but they sometimes don't even have time to like even pay attention to their own bodies. No, it's, it's, I see older women, like 60 to 70 year old women who come in to the doctor for the first time in years and years and years. They have hypertension, they have diabetes, they have high cholesterol in their blood. And it's because they've been taking care of everyone else. And they're like, I Mm -hmm. just haven't had time to focus on myself. They were taking care of their parents. They were taking care of their kids and they've just like suffered underneath the burden. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now we've got Oh, we've got Gen X and even the elder millennials, as they're called. I think I'm an elder millennial. I don't know how all of that works, honestly, because I feel like they move. It's like a goalpost always moving where they're like, um, yeah. It's whatever you self-identify as. Yeah, I guess. I I feel Gen Z. (laughs) Yeah, I do sometimes. But then I'm like, you can't. You're too old. You're way too old for that. Oh, I just laugh about that where I'm just like, yes, I have a distorted reality. (laughs) But I remember, I think it was in 2019, reading an article about how Gen X is the first generation that we will not see come out of depression because there is a phenomenon that usually happens in our 40s where we go into a state of depression 
but we come back out. And part of that depression is because your parents are getting older. They are moving on. Like there are these transitional moments in your life of like, you know, the empty nester, so to speak, things like that, that, you know, as the changes happen, you may feel sad. You may even move into depression. But generally speaking, what we've seen is that on the curve, women move out of that. And a high, a high majority of those women are going to move out of that. But Gen Z is going to be the first generation they don't think is going to come out of that because the boomers are going to perpetuate like this end of life care. And then they've got like their children going to college. And then the, the current climate, which is like, you know, you're in college right now. So I'm like, sorry, but like coming out of college, it's just a scary time right now. I think in all of that. And that really struck me. And then you see the millennials, the elder millennials, that they're like, they're never going to go through this midlife crisis because they never really got to be adults in that, in the same capacity as what boomers were as adults. Like, right. Like they, they had the house and the kids and the car and the career and all that kind of stuff in their twenties. And then they went midlife in their forties. And then millennials are in their forties being like, I don't have a house and car. Like, I don't know. I can't even take care of that kind of feeling. That older millennial and that Gen X are in that perimenopause moving into menopause phase. And so, of course, that is all weighing on that. And for anyone who is like under 35 right now being like, what does this have to do with me? Look at your future. It is literally here. And it is showing you what your hormones may be like. We are finally seeing awareness around perimenopause and menopause, but we are also seeing the normalization of what I would say is not normal. It is not normal to have extreme hot flashes, to experience brain fog, to not know where you put your keys, to not be able to sleep at night, to start having digestive changes. Like all of these are signs of neurodegeneration. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody is talking about how the anxiety and the depression could be that your brain isn't getting the stimulation from the hormones that it needs. And that manifestation is what the, like, what, you know, is the early signs that you are heading towards dementia, that you are heading towards chronic disease. And we're not having that conversation about hormones in the way that we really should be, right? We talked about earlier the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea picture. Like, this is also something else that, like, nobody is talking to women about the fact that. Everything that's happening with your hormones right now is determining what your end of life care is going to look like. You're losing your hormones and they're, you're, they're not supporting your pelvic floor. There are many, many women going into end of life care for incontinence. Incontinence that could have prevented with you know, pelvic floor physical therapy, but also having optimized hormones to support the musculature of your pelvic floor, of your vaginal um, canal, and of your, you know, urethra altogether. So the general urinary tract. Yeah. And there, there's a book that was written called The Female Brain. Um, and it's talking about how estrogen is protective to the brain. And so you were talking mm -hmm. about neurodegeneration. So if your estrogen, which is just one of the many hormones that you touch upon, is out of whack, it can cause some like brain degeneration. And some mm -hmm. of the people that you see with like fractures in their older age is because as young kids, they were told to eat less to look skinny so that they become yep. the hypothalamic amenorrhea. They don't have enough estrogen and their bones don't get stronger. So can mm -hmm. you like walk us through some of the main hormones that um, women should know about? And then also how yeah. like your menstrual cycle can kind of be like a gauge as to how your hormones are doing. Totally. Now we might want to jump right into estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, because these are our cyclical hormones and they're what everyone tells you is like, these are the lady part hormones. But where I really want to start here is with your adrenal glands and insulin production. So in my book, I have a pyramid. And in the pyramid, I explain your adrenal glands and your insulin are going to be the foundation of your hormonal health. So adrenal glands, two little glands sit on top of the kidneys, respond to stress really well. Cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, run away or sometimes freeze, not so helpful. Um, but, you know, fight or flight, like you're going to battle or you're going to like es escape. So phenomenal if there is a tiger. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where you do have to battle it out, Super important to have these hormones. The problem is, is that they're constantly being stimulated by the dumbest of things, right? Like I get mad at myself when like 
social media spikes my cortisol. And I'm just like, why, why'd you let that happen? Like, why did you do that? Like, and so I say the dumbest of things because like our modern self gets triggered by so many things that like pop off those adrenal glands. And so that might be skipping meals and, you know, fasting is definitely you know, a big thing right now. Yes, it does have utility. Yes, it can be helpful. No, it is not the best thing if you are still cycling to just go all in like extreme fasting that can mess with your adrenal glands and mess with your hormones overall. Um, so there's the stress response and our adrenal glands are not just producing stress hormones. They're also supporting us with estrogen and testosterone as we enter menopause by way of DHEA. DHEA is a lovely anti-aging hormone, keeps cortisol from aging us too quickly, and it becomes the main supply of estrogen and testosterone once the ovaries are done. Insulin is like the least sexy hormone to talk about. I feel like people are like, just like think it's the most boringest thing ever. Like it keeps you alive. It's really important. So insulin is a hormone. It basically like knocks on the cell door is like, I got some glucose with me. I vouch for it. Glucose is cool. Can you let them in? And then the, the cell's like, cool. All right. If you say it's cool, then here we go. And insulin is very important for regulating our blood sugar. We have, I think, a serious problem with blood sugar regulation in our country. I talk about in the book, like fiber, fat, protein, make it at every meal, and you are already eons ahead of the average person. But that blood sugar stability leads to cortisol stability, leads to immune system integrity, leads to better orgasms, actually. Insulin resistance is associated with loss of clitoral sensation. So write that down. (laughs) If you want to keep your clit happy, friends, keep your blood sugar in check. So These are really the foundational hormones. On top of that, we have thyroid hormone, lots of women struggling with thyroid disease, but it really is contingent on how well those adrenal and those, um, you know, the pancreas, the insulin producing organ are working for you. And then at the very tippy top is where we have our estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And why it's important to understand it in this way is because I feel like the, what everybody wants to do is chase the like sex hormones. Like we want to get like estrogen right so that like, you know, we, our brain fires like a champ and like we can, you know, have better memory and we are curvier and we have less fine right lines of wrinkles and our joints are less achy and our vagina actually self-lubricates and we have less yeast infections and BV and yeah, that's all like really great stuff. Or it's on the flip side where people are like, I'm cranky, I'm bloated, I have water retention, like I have PMS, like I hate estrogen, like get it out of here. And in reality, yes, we may have an estrogen issue. We may not have enough progesterone taking place, also very common. But why you might not have enough progesterone and your estrogen in in relativity to that is basically overstimulating cells and making you cranky and have PMS could be at the very root of it, what is going on with your adrenal glands? Because if stress is the priority by the body, then reproductive health has to take a back seat because your body is wise and it wants to keep you safe. It wants to make sure that you are healthy. And if there is any kind of threat in the environment where a baby would make you vulnerable, it's got to go. And so it's stress hormones always over sex hormones. And that's a real big bummer when you're like, but I just want to feel normal in my body or the lack of progesterone is making me feel more anxious. Mm. So if we're tracking our menstrual cycle, which actually is kind of amazing, almost all of the teens that I see in the clinic um, who identify as like female, have ovaries, have yeah. uterus, um, they're all tracking their periods, which is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so if what can you see in your menstrual cycle that might be A problem with your estrogen, I know you mentioned some PMS, a problem Mm -hmm. with your progesterone or problem with your testosterone. And then of course the underlying, you know, like insulin, cortisol that you were talking about. Totally. So I actually have checklists in the book so that you can do a self-evaluation of like, hey, could estrogen be your problem? Could cortisol be your problem? Like, let's figure out where we need to focus. And then I have nutrition, lifestyle, and supplement recommendations for all of those and things that you can try. I do want to say that for my people who are always like, what's the one thing that I can take? Uh, It's nutrition and lifestyle. It is not the supplements. (laughs) People are always like, what's the one thing? And I'm like, if you really forever want to feel better, that we got to make some some changes. So let's go through the menstrual cycle. So we talk about the menstrual cycle starting with the period. It actually starts with ovulation, but like that's kind of tricky to track. So that's why we start with the period. So looking at the period, we want to understand day one to the next day one. That's the entire cycle. If your cycle is, let's say, 21 days or less, that can be a sign that your progesterone is too low. If your cycles are passing 35 days and they're irregular, unpredictable, 
that can be a sign of polycystic ovarian syndrome or thyroid disease. If you are also noticing that you have unwanted hair growth on your chin, chest, abdomen, you're losing hair on your head, and you're having those irregular cycles, that's pointing more to PCOS. If you are noticing that you are cold, you're gaining weight. Now, the weight gain issue can be both PCOS and hypothyroidism, but if you're also cold and you're losing hair and your digestion is sluggish and you're tired all the time and you feel depressed or anxious, that could point more to thyroid disease if you're having those irregular periods. So that's where knowing your whole cycle can be really helpful with your period itself. If your period is extending beyond seven days or it's so heavy that you are going through like a tampon and a pad every single hour, that might be a sign of high estrogen, that that estrogen was overstimulating the endometrial lining, the lining of your uterus. And now you got a lot, you got a lot to shed. And so what you might also see when estrogen is high is that irritability and those PMS symptoms that we were talking about, but it usually goes hand in hand with low progesterone, not progesterone that's absent or so low that your period, your cycle gets really short, your periods get closer together. But instead that progesterone that's like, there's, it's carrying you just far enough. Like you're getting to like 25 days or more, but you're still like having really significant PMS, really heavy periods going on. If you're noticing mid-cycle that you're having oily skin and acne, that can be an estrogen testosterone issue because they do rise mid-cycle. However, a zit or two, not a problem. Cystic acne, super oily skin, um, that is something where we start looking at like, this is a high androgen issue. And we have to ask the question, could this be polycystic ovarian syndrome? About 10% of people have PCOS. I talk about it in the book. I also give a checklist, the difference between PCOS and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, because the number of times I've seen one of the other misdiagnosed has been way too many that I'm like, People, we need to we need to talk about the difference here because it may look like functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, but it may be PCOS. And why does that matter? Insulin resistance leading to diabetes, cardiometabolic changes that lead to increased visceral adiposity. So what am I talking about? Fat around your organs. I care far less if you've got that estrogen putting fat on your hips, butt, and thighs. Um, I care about visceral adiposity. And that's the conversation I think in medicine we should be having is not like, how much do you weigh? What's your BMI? Like, who cares? Like, what is your cardiometabolic profile looking like? What is your in inflammation looking like? And if you are someone with PCOS, we need to be on top of that. You, you, I don't care that you're 20. We need to check your blood pressure. Like we need to be doing these basic things. So that's some of the ways to just look at the cycle and understand some of what is going off. I have an entire, or that might be off, excuse me. I have an entire chapter on the period in my book and then an entire chapter on the menstrual cycle, helping you really decode and understand like what's going on. And then answering like some of the weirder things, like what causes me to feel like I have an electrical skewer going through my bum, like partway through, you know, through my cycle or when my period, you know, just starts. And, you know, why is it that I have period poops and diarrhea and like these things that like a lot of people are having, but nobody's talking about. And everyone's feeling like I've got to be the only weirdo having it happened to them. I say that as a teen who definitely thought I was the only weirdo that things were happening to. And I, that's literally what I would say in my mind. I am the only weirdo like this is going <laughs> to be happening to. As it turns out, a lot of us experience these things and a lot of these things can be managed with diet. So like some of them just diet alone. I, I also was wondering too, there's people who skip their periods on um, the birth control pill. Oh, so if yeah. they're taking the birth control pill, they skip their their bleeding week. And I know that yeah. you're not technically having like like true menstrual cycles all the time on the pill, but um, they're told by practitioners that that's okay to do if they're having symptoms of their period. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that? This is like where we really mess up with language in medicine because it's not a period when you're on the pill. And we and then medicine tells you like, you don't need a period while you're on the pill. Then you don't have a period, you're off the pill. And you're like, why is this a problem? Like my doctor said, it's fine if I don't have a period. No, that was when you were on the pill. Well, what's the difference? Okay, so the difference is if you're not on the pill, you need to be ovulating regularly if you're not menopausal, right? Okay, ovulation comes, then menstruation comes. Everybody understand this because like if you don't want a baby, you need to know this because- um, if you do struggle with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, for example, ovulation will be the first thing to return. 
then your period will come. So it's ovulation first. While you're on the pill, you best not be ovulating because that's how it prevents pregnancy. It's the primary mechanism. So what follows is a medication-induced withdrawal bleed. You stop the medication, there's no stimulation, then you bleed. You don't need to have that bleed because unlike your natural estrogen, you are not building up the endometrial lining in the same way. So if you don't have a period, so let me just say that, like if you're someone with PCOS, they might say, oh, you need to go on the pill so that you can have a period. And then they're like, but you don't have to have a period if you're on the pill. Also confusing. (laughs) But why would they put you on the pill to induce a bleed? Because if your estrogen is continuing to stimulate that endometrial lining, in years' time, you could end up with endometrial cancer. But you're first going to have endometrial hyperplasia, and you're going to have the worst period of your life when it comes because it's going to be heavy and clotty and all kinds of problems because it's a lot of lining that's built up. So they may use the pill in that way. And then once you've been on it for a bit, they'll say like, oh, you don't need to have a period. There is no reason to have that bleed on the pill. But if you are not on the pill, there is every reason to be having a bleed because that is, um, you know, it's Dr. Lara Brighton who called it the report card. It is the report card of your body. It is letting you know that things are healthy and normal. This is, we've talked about functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. That's the loss of menstruation. We've ruled everything out. You're not getting a period because of stress. And the stress is usually you don't eat enough and you're moving too much. And there's an imbalance in energy expenditure versus energy input. That is a situation where sometimes doctors will say, we need to put you on the pill to protect your bone health. It actually doesn't protect your bone health as good like the way that we used to do it, but also is nowhere as good as your natural estrogen is. But that is when you should definitely, you know, I encourage everybody, unless you're using it for pregnancy prevention, really pause on because you will never know if you actually are doing anything right to reclaim your period, because wherever you're on the pill, you're suppressing ovulation, and ovulation is what you have to get returned before you'll get your menstrual cycle returned. So you have to ovulate, then get that period. And so if you're on the pill, we'll never know. That was a very long explanation to say you don't need to bleed while you're on the pill, but you absolutely do need to bleed if you're not on the pill. No, that's super helpful. I mean, and all of these questions are nuanced. That's why the title of our podcast is The Nuance and some things that are lost on social media. So thank you for explaining that. Um, Yeah. And then, so the base of the pyramid, the the adrenals, so cortisol, and then insulin. What are some just general lifestyle factors that you recommend for people to balance out their cortisol and their insulin? Yes. So this is where you can like two for one and I am lazy as all humans are. And that is like, what can I do? There's like one thing. So one thing you can do is start to get your inflammation down. We can make those shifts by sometimes uh, decreasing the amount of processed foods that we're eating. Getting better sleep results in less inflammation, better blood sugar regulation, and certainly better functioning adrenal glands. Getting your fiber up. If you are, if you have ovaries, the consensus in science is at least 25 grams, at least 25 grams of fiber every single day. There has been some recent research showing that rheumatoid arthritis patients might do not do as well with higher fiber. So again, what's normal for you, but like to eat the fiber fat protein, like we just want to be getting in high quality protein for most people. They're going to need to eat meat to be able to get like enough protein on their plate. If that's not true for you, you don't want to do that. Just be very mindful about your protein intake. Uh, People are saying like, we don't need as much protein as like we've been told. It's not that important. That's a flat out lie. That is not true. My So when I was uh, working on my master's, it was in sarcopenic obesity research. And like, this is 20 years ago that we knew if you were not getting ample branched chain amino acids, forget it. You're going to become the M&M guy with the big round body and the skinny little arms. And you might be like, oh, you're shaming body image. Friend, I am not. That is that visceral adiposity that is it increased everything, like dying sooner, dying of the worst things sooner, being debilitated, having chronic disease. I don't want that for you or anyone. It's not about how you look. It's about losing your muscle and putting on this this fat around your organ. It is, I, I think sometimes um, I had a patient that was like, yeah, but wouldn't that be like, you know, kind of like bubble wrap in a package? And I'm like, I love this idea, but it's not. <laughs> it is not that way. So getting that fiber up, uh, that's gonna be by way of plants. This is gonna be one of the most nutrient dense. So yes, my gosh, she said, eat meat. But I also said, eat lots of plants, like six to nine servings a day of plants. 
Um, that is where the science has always been at. The food pyramid has always been lying to you. Okay. Like this, like couple servings a day, never supported by science. So getting your plants up and then the fat, this isn't like as a kid of the nineties, I know we were supposed to eat margarine and avoid everything else. Right. And like, can't believe it's not butter, but yeah, cause it's not butter and your body knows. Okay. So we want to have whole fats from food, whole foods. Butter is not the devil. Get it from grass-fed cow. It's even better. It has antioxidants in it. But also looking at things like nuts and seeds, those are always winning in the research. And I don't care about the like anti-nut and seed people being like they're like, you know, there's these these like anti-whole food people who are like <laughs> coming out being like, all the plants are trying to kill you. You shouldn't eat plants. And I'm like, do you know what we've done to plants? <laughs> they cannot, they did not mount the defense that they once upon a time could have. Like we, we have made sure of that. So, um, but getting those healthy fats on your plate, all of this is going to help with blood sugar stabilization. It's going to help your mitochondria, your microbiome, and is going to help your hormones overall. And if you can make those fats, the anti-inflammatory fats, so getting more omega-3 fatty acids, omega-6s are not bad. Friends, you're going to get those in your nuts and seeds. But if they're coming from processed foods, like you had to open up a bag to eat it, it's not your friend and it's making your periods really awful and it's making your brain really cranky. Let's move away from that. So these kind of like, you know, these kinds of things that we've heard a million times before, whenever I have someone who's like, this is nothing new, I'm always like, well, how well are you doing it? Because the majority of people are not, they know it, but they're not doing it. And it's an opportunity when you hear it again to ask yourself and to reevaluate your life. So making sure that you're getting the quality sleep, making sure that you are being kind to yourself actually lowers inflammation as well. Making sure that you're tending to your early signs and symptoms that come up, making sure that you are filling your plate with the intention of nourishing your body. And then as I say in the book, we are going to have our cake and balanced hormones too, because this is not an all or nothing. And that's just the last thing I want to say is that if you're hearing all of this and you're like, okay, check, must be perfect, you are already inflamed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've already started an inflammatory response because your body's like, what? I'm not, I can't do all these things. And like anxiety inducing behaviors uh, are like trying to go for perfection are not the way either. And so I also just want people to know that um, just by way of loving yourself and being gentle with yourself when you don't do it exactly how you want can have profound, profound impact on your hormonal health. Like they literally do studies and measure your blood and there is a difference just in being kind to yourself. I love that. And I love that you're not striving for perfection, but you're giving people tools to feel good. <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Oh, that, like my brain just went to female and uh, <laughs> I got someone Love actually it. just sent me a plaque that's like the future is female um, I, as I raised two boys. <laughs> Oh man, uh, that my friend who sent me that plaque, like they definitely knew what they were doing, like well played. Um, so I think it, what I really do want to say about that though is in the future being female is not that the future is only women, but I think the future of medicine is moving towards the concept that we are not just the inferior body type with uh, baby making accessories. Like that is not what we are. Um, and I think so much of medicine has been like the male archetype. I mean, how much real estate is granted to the penis in a medical textbook compared to the clitoris? Like so much, like don't even get me started on how much penis is like up in there. <laughs> but I think in the future where we really need to head is a conversation about what is normal for the female experience, the female body. And in saying all of that, I'm talking about those with ovaries, those with a womb, those with a vulva having a very different experience in all capacities of life because of how we're set up to be in tune with the environment, how we are cyclical by design, and how we also have a different response to medications, medical interventions, and different presentations when it comes to our health. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Brighton, for all of your wisdom and all of the information that you share with us. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and keep on going. I love what you do. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. This is like not entirely what I like had in my expectations or set out to do and yet enjoyed it more than I could have imagined. So I love that. (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the nuance and medicine explained and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board certified practicing clinician.